Well, if you would this morning, open up to the book of Joel. It's after the Psalms. It's in the Minor Prophets. It's right after the book of Hosea. It's a short book, three chapters. And as I was preparing this week, thinking about the message of the book of Joel, I thought about how recently I was sitting with a friend and we were talking about parenting. I have three little kids, six, four, and two. Um, and this other friend has kids, three kids about the same age. So we were sitting down at coffee, exchanging short stories, showing off our battle scars to each other, the things that parents with young children do. We were also sharing about the difficulties of parenthood, our struggles, our, our failures, the ways that we need to grow. And it was comforting for both of us uh, to realize in that moment that Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm not alone. Like there's someone else experiencing some of the same things I am. Um, I'm not alone in the ways I've failed. Like for some reason that, that made me feel a little better, you know? Um, and, and I think lots of us have this sort of experience in life where we think whether it's a fear that we have, an anxiety that we're dealing with, a feeling that we're struggling with, depression, whatever it might be, I think we've all had the experience of feeling like we're alone and then talking with somebody else and going, oh, I'm not alone. Like there's something comforting about that. My point is, is that our experiences in life are more common than we think. And I think a common experience that we're less likely to talk about that we're less likely to open up about, that we're more likely to keep private, is the reality that if you start peeling back the layers of any of our lives, you start to realize that we're all kind of a mess. We're all kind of a mess. And we're all kind of a mess for, for, for lots of reasons, but a specific reason I want to talk about this morning is we're all kind of a mess because of our own sin. In some way, shape, or form, and to varying degrees among us all this morning who are here, some area of our life is either just beginning to deteriorate or is already in ruins because of our sin, because of our failures, because of our mistakes. For some of us, we we get angry and frustrated. We habitually sin with our tongue, and then we ruin relationships. Others of us lust after more stuff, more money, more success. And then when things don't go our way, when we don't get what we want, what we don't get what we're lusting after, our hearts grow bitter and we actually grow discontented with God. Maybe there are some here this morning who are secretly walking down a dark path and moving further away from Jesus. Others hold on to their rights and refuse to be reconciled to those who have hurt them. Right? The, the list could just go on. There's all sorts of ways that our sin is making a mess of our lives. And so whatever it is for you specifically today, we are all kind of in a mess. And we are all dealing with, to varying degrees, the way that sin ruins our lives and then our need for God's restoration. And this is where the book of Joel, what we're going to be reading today, 
comes in. And, and really, all of the minor prophets, I think, are timely for us because of these things. Over the next six months, once per month, we're going to preach through an entire book from the minor prophets. So we're going to preach a sermon on an entire prophet. It's a big task. But my hope, one, part of this is because I think these are some of the least familiar books to us in the Bible. When you open the prophets, like, they're just, they're very confusing. They, they, they don't speak like Paul does in the New Testament, which is very orderly. This is more like a spoken word performance. This is more like a musical, the way that these prophets write and the way that they convey their message. So my hope is not only that we would get to know them better, but really that their voice would just get really loud, that their voice would get really in our face to wake us up, to see the ruin that our sin brings, but then also the restoration that God provides. We need the voice of the prophets for that reason. And so the big idea from the book of Joel, and, and, and really the question that's being answered by Joel as we're going to look at the entire book today, is how can I be restored when I'm ruined by sin? How can I be restored when I'm ruined by sin? And we're going to answer this in three parts. We're going to answer this in three parts, and I'll just announce them as they come. The first way on the path to restoration, when we're ruined by our sin, the first step on the pathway to restoration, according to Joel, it's to realize that you're ruined. Realize that you're ruined. And this is, this really covers chapter one, verses one, all the way through chapter two, verses, verse 11. And we're not going to read all of that, but I'm going to get, bring out some highlights for us. So the book starts like this, Joel chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of your fathers, tell your, tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. A little strange, right? These are the prophets. And so the, the, the book begins by reminding us right away in verse 1, the, the role that prophets played in God's economy. And no, prophets' main role was not to be tellers of the future, predictors. That's not their main role. Their main role is to proclaim God's word to God's people. We see that in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel. And then now from verse 2 all the way through the end of the book, Joel is proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And he begins, as we see in verses 2 through 4, by bringing up what seems to be a current event in the nation of Israel at this time. Apparently, at this time in history in Israel, there was a locust plague that came through. And it was, if you keep reading chapter 1, we find out that it was of catastrophic and epic proportions. So as we read, as you read through chapter 1, it's apparent that this this locust plague that came through was utterly devastating to the entire nation of Israel. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate 
palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. There's no joy left, no crops. Their livestock are suffering. You can imagine the, the economy is failing. Catastrophic. And as you continue from verse 12, reading through chapter 1, it becomes apparent that Joel, the prophet Joel, sees this locust invasion as something much bigger than just a locust invasion. Throughout chapter 1, he brings up key words and he's calling people out. He's saying, here, verse 2, and verse 5, and then verses 8 through 10, he says, he's basically saying, wake up, hear what I have to say. Give ear. Israel, this isn't just a freak accident, this locust plague. This is a manifestation of what Joel calls the day of the Lord. And we read this in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And this this theme of day of the Lord comes up all throughout the book. Joel says this, Alas! For the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The the day of the Lord in in the Bible, it it generally refers to times in, 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 in history when God shows up in a dramatic way to judge his enemies and to save his people. So the first time that that this concept of the day of the Lord comes up in the Bible is with the Exodus. So in the Exodus, God sent plagues, including locusts, on the nation of Egypt, who was enslaving his people, the people of Israel. And so God sends these plagues on the people of Egypt, and eventually he judges them, and then he also then works to save his people and redeem them and take them through the Red Sea and destroy their enemies. This was the day of the Lord. When God shows up, he's judging his enemies and saving his people. But notice what Joel's saying here. Another day of the Lord has come, but who's God's enemy now? Who have the locusts come upon? Israel has become Egypt. That's what's going on here. Israel has rebelled against God. They have become God's enemy. And the story of the Bible shows us that at the time around when Joel lived, Israel had been rebelling against God for years, hundreds of years, living in unfaithfulness to him, breaking the covenant with their God. And now, as God promised he would do, if they broke the covenant, he's judging them. He's bringing them to ruin. And as we continue to read chapters 1 and 2, which I would encourage you to read the whole book. It's only three chapters, taking maybe 15 minutes. As we read chapters 1 and 2, there's, we start to find out that this judgment, this ruin, the locust invasion, and then the effects that it has actually points to something much greater. It points to what this judgment actually is. So in chapter 1, and, 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 and the things that Joel brings up thematically are important. Just keep them in mind. In chapter 1, Joel talks about the land being ruined. So the locusts came and they ate all the crops. The land is ruined. But then when we get to chapters two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, 
Joel starts to describe this locust plague like an enemy, like this enemy army invasion against Israel with God. As at, he's, he's at the helm. He's the captain leading this enemy army invasion of locusts against his people. And these two things, so the land being ruined, so there's no more crops, and the enemy invasion, both of those things point to one thing. I'm going to read two parts, one from chapter 1 and one from chapter 2. So chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. No grain, no wine, no oil. All of this means that the people have nothing to offer sacrifices of praise with to God, which means their means of, of communion with God are cut off. And then look at chapter 2. So now he switches to talking about the locusts, like this enemy army invasion. One of the ways he describes them as they're invading the land, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, after they've done their destruction and stuff. Behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. When God's locust army invades, there's no more Eden. And if we know the biblical story, Eden, the Garden of Eden was the place where man had fellowship and perfect communion with God. The real meaning of this ruin, the real meaning of judgment What the land destroyed and the invading enemies points to is that God is no longer with his people. His presence is gone. That's the real judgment. I was reading a book this past week in which the author cited a scientific study showing the effects of loneliness on humans. And that loneliness for humans is actually, it's, proven scientifically to be deadly. So one journalist talking about this scientific study said that it leads to, I think he said it well, he said it leads to broken hearts, both literally and figuratively. Loneliness is poisonous. And so there's this conversation happening in our culture about loneliness. We could extend this to the fact that we're always on our devices, we're on our phones, we're disconnected, people feel like, this is an ongoing problem, the, poison, the poisonous effects of loneliness. But what seems to be lacking in our culture's realization is the eternally deadly consequences of being spiritually lonely, separated from the Creator God. And what we see here is that separation from God is hellish. It's literally hellish. This is what sin does. It ruins us by hindering our fellowship with God. And then that hindrance trickles down into all of our other relationships and ruins them as well. Like, like as believers, there is a reason that we feel far from God 
when we are choosing to sin. There's a reason church members avoid gathering with God's people when they're living in secret sin. Sin poisons everything that is good and true and beautiful. And it's the re- sin is the reason that we were cast out of Eden. And sin makes our lives an utter mess. And what Joel's doing here for Israel and what we need him to do for us today is to wake us up, to, to get us to see afresh the reality of what sin does to us, to realize how sin ruins us. It leaves things in shambles. And we need to hear this as believers today. Because if you're anything like me, and if we are anything like the nation of Israel, often we become way too comfortable with sin. It's, it's, it's something that we, we know is bad. We know it will ruin us. But then over time, we start to become civil with it, and we become more friendly with it, and we start rubbing shoulders with it. And next thing we know, it's strangling us. And we're choking to death. But for some reason, we get comfortable with it. We even start to like it. This is what James talks about in the New Testament. In James 1, 14 to 15, he says, Each person is tempted. And, and, and you'll notice as I read this, there's a progress of how sin works. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation by desire leads to sin. We've committed sin. It starts growing and getting out of control. produces death. Joel's point to us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that we need to stop flirting with sin. Sin is not our friend. It is not a companion to get comfortable with. It is not a buddy to hang out with. It will ruin you. And if, if any of us are flirting with sin today, and, and let me just say what I mean by flirting with sin. As believers, we understand that God is progressively transforming us into the image of Jesus. There are ways that we will be sinning the rest of our lives here on this, on this earth. And so I'm saying we should not be comfortable with that. We should always be fighting with it. But when we are intentionally and knowingly, willingly moving against what we know is wrong, when we are choosing and we know that it's not the right choice, I would say that that is definitely flirting with sin. And so if you are flirting with sin today, Joel is calling you to wake up. It's, this is supposed to make us feel utterly devastated. It's supposed to back us into a corner. It's supposed to make us feel anguish. And not just for the sake of like feeling bad or something. It's supposed to do that because this is the first step to restoration. This is our bit. How can I be restored when I'm ruined by sin? Well, you have to realize that you're ruined. That is the first step. Joel wants us to realize 
that sin ruins us so that we can get to point number two and cry out to God. And point number two, the second step on this pathway that Joel gives us to restoration is to return to God in repentance. And this is chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as we get here, the transition into chapter 2 is kind of jarring. So chapter 2, verse 11, God is pictured, and we didn't read it, but you can go read it on your own. In chapter 2, verse 11, God is basically pictured as, as the captain of this army invading against his people. And then all of a sudden in verse 12, we go from God leading his army against his people to this. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Despite everything, Despite their sin, God yearns for his people to come back to him. He is ruining them so that they would see that they need him and they would run back to him. And we see that as we keep reading, which we'll do here in a second, we start to realize why Joel had to wake them up to the reality of their mess, of their ruin because of their sin. And we see that it's, because he wants them to repent. So if you keep reading, verse 13 says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So he says, return to me, verse 12, return to me with all your heart, rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, God wants his people to come back brokenhearted for their sin. And a broken heart cannot happen unless we see the reality of our sin. It's just not going to happen. And we have to realize that we're ruined because of sin before we can be broken for our sin. Does that make sense? And then it's only when we're needy and when we're broken that we'll actually consider returning to God. So God breaks us. We come to realize the folly of our sin, our ruin, and we're brokenhearted. But then, when you're really broken over your sin, when you're really devastated because of it, you realize that there's a tension. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I know I have. You start to realize that there's a massive tension. The God I've offended The God who judges sin is the exact one to whom I have to now go for reconciliation. And then the question comes up, how can I know that God will forgive me? How, like, what type of father will I meet when I walk through the door all filthy with my sin? And in verses 13 and 14, Joel shows God's people, he shows us, why we could ever think that we could return to God. Listen to what he says. Rend your hearts, verse 13, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for, here's the reason why, here's why they can return. For, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows 
whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel says, the father we meet when we walk through that front door, all filthy with our sin, the, the, the father we meet is one who is ready to burst out with mercy and grace and steadfast love to everybody who turns to him. He is ready to restore fellowship. Look, he talks about restoring, leaving a blessing behind him, giving a grain offering and a drink offering, the means of communion with him. He is ready to give that to everybody who turns to him in repentance, even those who have been wildly unfaithful. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is near to who? To the righteous? To those who have it all together? To those who aren't a mess? Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You have to realize you're ruined so that you can return to God in repentance. And so with this in mind, then it's no wonder that in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, that Joel then calls the people to urgency. Listen to this. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Basically, he's saying, Turning back to God and returning to him is so important. It's so urgent. It's such a priority that guess what, moms, you got to skip nap time for the babies. And guess what, newlyweds, you can't go on your honeymoon. Like this is so important. Everybody, every age, children, elders, nursing infants, bridegroom, bride, everyone, come back as fast as you can. When we realize that we are ruined by our sin, the call to return to God in repentance as fast as we can is present. In other words, our text leaves us with no reason to wait to return to God. Yes, our sin brings disastrous ruin to our lives. But we see here, it's not so big for God. And None of us can claim that he'll reject us because of who he is. It would be inconsistent with his character. He is near to the brokenhearted. Repentance is not something to procrastinate over. Why? Because as our text continues, we see that repentance and returning to God is yet another step towards the pathway to restoration. And this gets us to our last point. The last part of this pathway to restoration is to rejoice in God's restoration. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 18, 18 through 27. It's the longest passage that we'll read this morning. It says this. So remember, Joel has just called the people to return to God and with repentance. And then chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make 
your reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. This is talking about the locust army, the enemies. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, for he who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. In response to Israel's repentance, we see here that God reverses and restores the three things ruined by their sin in chapters 1 and 2. So first, the land. Now they have grain, wine, and oil. They've got it back. And the enemies, they're, they're destroyed. They even smell bad. And now, in verse 27... God's with his people. I am in the midst of Israel. And as we read this, though, the amazing thing is that this restoration that God gives to his people, the reversal of their ruin is completely, it's just like so over the top. So not only does God give them back the restoration of the land, he gives them grain, wine, and oil, oil, but they have more than enough grain and the oil and the wine barrels are just bursting out. They're overflowing. That's in verse 24. And so now not only are their enemies removed from them, but they're destroyed. Like they're just, they're completely done and they're not shamed anymore. There's no shame. That's chapter two, verse 20. And then not only is God with them, but he's forever in their midst. That's, that's the sense of verse 27. This is utterly pure grace. Just pure grace. It's so undeserved. And here's the reality. What we see here is that when we turn to God in repentance, he can and does legitimately bring restoration into our lives. He can heal relational wounds caused by the sins of our tongue. He can save broken marriages. He can change a hard heart. He can help break addiction. The ruin caused by sin can be reversed by God in his grace and in his power. That's what this text shows us. But then what Joel does next is even more astounding. So he looks at, it's almost like he looks at these verses that we read and he sees the restoration that God grants to his people, the reversal of their ruin. And he sees it as an example of the restoration that God will bring in an even greater sense in the future. And so this carries us into chapter 2, verse 28, all the way through the rest of the book. 
And I'm not going to read it all here. Again, I would encourage you at home to read it. But in chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, he takes this idea of God's presence and talks about a future day when God would send his spirit on his people. Every, everybody who's a part of the people of God would have God's personal presence with them, on them, among them. To indwell them and to restore them spiritually. This is, this is what Jonathan read from Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had ascended to heaven, God sends the Spirit to indwell his people. They were not left alone. And next, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, it talks about a future day when God will enter into battle with and destroy his enemies. Both These are God's enemies and the enemies of his people. And he's going to destroy them once, for all, once and for all. And then finally... In chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, the book ends speaking about not only the defeat of, of the enemies of God's people, but then also the restoration of all of creation, the land, the restoration. And this is the time when God's people will finally dwell with him fully forever. And as the story of Scripture unfolds, we see that these things begin to come to fruition, as I was talking about just a second ago, in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. God comes as Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas. Christmas isn't done, you guys. Still here this week, all right? Jesus comes to be God with us. And then following his death and resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit to be with us, to be in us, to be among us. And then we see throughout the New Testament letters and then finally in the book of Revelation that Jesus will one day return with a sword, that the final day of the Lord will come and that on that day, all of the ruin, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the shame, all of the enemies, all the chaos, all the tears, all the turmoil that God's people face will forever and finally be reversed. Our wilderness will become a new and better Eden. Our loneliness will become forever companionship with our God and with each other. And our enemies will be brought to nothing. God will reverse the ruin of sin and bring everlasting restoration to the whole of his creation. Brothers and sisters, the point this morning is that while God has begun to reverse the effects of sin in our lives right here and right now, if we have called upon the name of the Lord, if we have turned to him, he is starting to do that. But the great promise to us is that that work is not done. And that one day, this will happen. This great reversal, this great restoration will happen totally and completely for all of eternity. And all of this, if we go back to chapter 2, all of this, according to Joel, calls us to rejoice. The only command for God's people in this last section is in chapter 2, verse 23. The only imperative that is pointed at us is verse 23 of chapter 2. It says this, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. 
For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. He calls them to rejoice, to take joy. And this, I think, is one of the hardest things for us to do. And I think there's two reasons. There could be more, but there's at least two. One is that sometimes we just forget. We just, we just forget the beauty and the magnitude and the awesomeness of God's restoration in our lives. We forget the beauty of the gospel. This is one of the reasons why we gather each week, brothers and sisters. We gather to remember the gospel. We gather to rejoice in the truth of what God has done to reverse the ruin of our sin. To have our hearts stirred. I think another reason, though, is that sometimes we just find this flat out hard to believe. Like, like this is too good to actually be true. Like, I'm pretty sure God's like, even though like I'm saved, like I became a Christian, but I just think like God's mad at me all the time. The reality is, is that God truly restores sinners who repent. Even you, even me, regardless of if we feel that way or not, our feelings do not dictate the truth of God's word. And yet, God does want us. He actually desires us. And in one sense, he commands us to rejoice in what he has done for us. He does care about how we feel. God actually cares about how you feel. He cares about your joy. And he knows that the ultimate joy comes from rejoicing in the gospel. He wants the gift that he gives to us of restoration to actually bring us joy. And I think part of that for us, despite our feelings at times, and despite everything in us that screams and shouts, that this cannot be, like it can't, like this is just too good to be true. I think one of the solutions is we need to simply accept it. And maybe it's even telling God, God, I accept. I yield. I accept your restoration. I accept your power. I accept your grace. I accept your love. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, rejoicing is part of moving. It's part of the pathway from ruin to restoration. Some of the highest and holiest, most God-glorifying thoughts that we can ever entertain are those of thankfulness for the grace of God toward us in the face of Jesus. Yes, God wants us to realize the depth of our sin. He wants us to see our ruin. But I think what the Bible shows us is that he wants us to rejoice in his restoration and simply accept it and revel in it. That's the message of Joel. How can I be restored when I'm ruined by sin? And Joel gives us some really pointed answers this morning. 
And so I'll end where I started. In one sense, we're all a mess. We're all a mess. But thanks to the message of Joel, we know that we are not without a solution for that mess caused by our own sin. God restores. He restores. And he does this so well, so completely, and so graciously. And so what's that pathway that he gives us? How do you get out of this mess? How do you move from ruin to restoration? Joel would say, well, you got to realize the ruin of your sin. you got to let that drive you to turn back to God with a broken heart and then freely rejoice in the restoration that he gives you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and we rejoice in your goodness in our lives. Thank you that you have brought us from ruin to yourself. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that we will dwell with you forever. Thank you that you you have turned our ruin into rejoicing this morning. We thank you and we praise you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.